Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today I have Lottie Moore, who is a mindset trainer and she runs events like firewalking and various mindset training. Lottie, would you mind just giving a quick 30 to 90 second intro to who you are and who you help and the kind of problems that you fix? Hi, Marcus. Yeah. So as you already know, I'm Lottie Moore and I run an organization called Mindset Metaphors. I'm best known as a master firewalk instructor, so training other people to run firewalking events and work with things like glasswalking and things like that as well. I assist people to really bring their mindset round into a position where it supports their success. So for many people I work with, they're running their own businesses and they're looking to really up their ante. But rather than working with people that support them with the business processes, I support them to create a mindset that will support that. Interesting. Well, let's talk about mindset. What is mindset? That's a really great question. And one that's quite difficult to answer succinctly. But I would say that our mindset is all about the bullshit we tell ourselves and the beliefs that we have, values that we have, that all come together in our unconscious mind to support our actions. And if we can get that right, then our mindset will really support us to take things to the next level. But quite often we have beliefs that are stacked from when we were little kids, from maybe bad training we've done or poor experiences that we've done that then support our mindset to go into the opposite position where for some reason or another, we don't believe we can achieve what we want to, we don't believe we should try and so on and so forth. And therefore our mindset is that unconscious mind that is sometimes helping us, but quite often hindering us from doing what we want to get done. Carol Dweck's book on the subject is really worth a read. It talks about the difference between having a growth or open mindset versus a closed mindset that's tied by limiting beliefs. In terms of helping your clients, what are the first steps that you take in terms of diagnosing where they are and what limiting beliefs are holding them back? I think for them, often it's just open conversation and I can really pick up on what's going on under the surface. You know, you hear people say little bits and pieces that can give big clues as to what's going on. The issue can quite often be that people will create whole big stories sometimes to support their mindset. So I call it a belief table. So you have a strong belief at the top or maybe a fear. And then what people do is they give those table legs. So they create many, many truths or beliefs that stack that table up. So for instance, if somebody had, I can't earn more than a quarter of a million pounds in a year, their belief tables might be, I don't have the time, I don't have the skills base, I've never made that much before, my family's always been poor, money is not a good thing, only greedy people have it, and so on and so forth. So they give all this fear, this one overarching belief, legs that create that. And so quite often, if I can pinpoint what the legs are, we can start pulling it down. It's really interesting. In our world, we always teach our clients, you'll only perform to the level your self-concept will allow. There is a partner rule to that, 
which is you are earning today exactly what you think you're worth, not a penny more, not a penny less. And yeah. that ties into their money concept, which is often the single most important factor when it comes to whether or not someone can or will be helped and whether they're willing to change. So this then ties back to our growth mindset. What is it that keeps people stuck? So many different things. Firstly, with most people, it's that they don't even realize that they're doing it. They don't even realize what they're stating is a truth. It's an absolute belief to them. And so they don't even realize that it is something that could be challenged. After that, maybe when they do get to a point of recognition, it can be that the challenging it and turning that belief on its head can be hard. You know, it doesn't just happen overnight. You don't just read a personal development book and suddenly go, that's it, I'm completely changed. There used to be a thing that went around quite strongly there, 21 days to change a habit. It's absolutely not true. I can see you uh, kind of in agreement there with me. It takes about 21 days to lay down a new neural pathway, but it can take months, if not years, to break down the old one, depending how strong it has been. And that's what mindset work is all about. It's a long-term game. And the reality is for most people, even myself, even when you become aware of a belief and you start challenging it and start working on it, then all the other beliefs that are under the surface there keep coming up. So it's a long-term game. It's interesting. I mean, for years, I've been taught that it was 21 days, but the latest research suggests that the minimum is around 66 days. And it's very common to go up to 250 days plus, and sometimes even longer. In NLP, there is a technique called swish patterns. And I've had quite a lot of success working with clients to break the initial back of the problem so that they can become more open to change. Have you got any experience in that sort of area and any anecdotes or thoughts that you'd like to share? The metaphors that I work with are a perfect example of that, really, because it's almost like a shock process. And what that can do is really create such a strong anchor into success and breaking through something that somebody thinks is completely impossible. And it just helps to really kind of kickstart that change process because that's what can take the time is for people to even question their beliefs, even start doing the work. So once they've got that really strong anchor of, gosh, I just walked broken glass or I just broke an arrow with my throat, what can't I do? As soon as that question is opened up, you can throw that into any area of your life and then start really re-examining what your beliefs are. I do have to ask, is there a weight limit to the glass walking? No. And in fact, it's incredible. The heavier, the better for the first person that walks, I think. Because when heavier people walk, it makes a brilliant noise. You really hear the glass breaking underfoot and it scares the bejesus out of everybody else that's waiting. I do have to ask the question. (laughs) (laughs) Why would anyone put themselves into this situation where they're walking on broken glass or on burning hot coals? It is that overcoming of your fear, I think, especially broken glass. Most people hold a really strong anchor with the first time they heard the sound of broken glass. It's normally their mum or somebody similar standing in the kitchen doorway going, don't come in, don't come in, I've broken a glass. 
and that real shock of fear. And people can carry that with them for a long, long time. And of course, then to be presented with a long walkway of glass and told to go for it, especially as you say, if somebody you know has walked heavier, that's made the real sound of the breaking glass, it's absolutely terrifying. I've done it with the military a few times. And, you know, we have these big burly soldiers all in their greens and everything coming up and they're holding my hand. They're sweating. They're turning green, some of them, to match their uniforms. So it's a really, it can be a really debilitating situation if people allow it to be. But if you can step through that, then it just opens up possibilities in every area of life. So... Tell me this then, we've touched on it already in terms of scripting. In my experience, people may have the ability to change, but they may not have the willingness. And often what I find is when we dig deeper, there's a voice going on in their head. Often it's not theirs, it's inherited. They borrowed it from a parent, a teacher, and as you pointed out earlier, it's often from childhood. What can one do in order to modify the experience of that voice and loosen its control? I think there's lots of things. I think the first thing is not to be judgmental of yourself. There's no right or there's no wrong. Whatever's happened in the past, whatever has hold a control over your thought patterns in the past or is now, is the way it is. So number one, it's really important not to stand in a place of judgment of yourself. But also to make a choice that you want to move forward. So it's a conscious decision. I hear this voice in the back of my head, you know, whoever, whatever it is, I recognize that it's there, but I'm not going to let it hold me back anymore. It's interesting. We teach a concept called reach back and afterburn, where Uh someone reaches back into their history and then they drag the misery of that moment into the present. And that's Uh the afterburn. It's really interesting how often I had a client who was in his mid-60s who was absolutely phobic of dealing with numbers because at about the age of 10 or 11, his father over Sunday lunch asked him to recite his times tables. He couldn't and uh, he felt ashamed. And as a result of that, he allowed two other people to run his business. And on both occasions, they actually managed to steal most of his client base and uh, and kill his business. So he had to start the business again from being very successful to nothing. And then five years later, exactly the same pattern. And it's fascinating how these things have a hold on us. We always teach that you should be your own best friend and you should stop shooting on yourself because there seems to be an awful lot of that. What is it that causes people to stay stuck? Quite often fear, for instance. So if you take that guy that you were just talking about, then all those, those two experiences of the business failing and breaking down and so on will also all be tied into that belief system. And then it becomes harder and harder to step out of that because the script then becomes, I'm a failure, I can't do this, I've done it before. And the same with weight loss, for instance. People will try and lose weight five or six times. Each time they try, it becomes harder and harder and harder because they've got that script going on of all the times they haven't done it. And so it becomes fear of looking silly to your friends. Oh, I've done this with two businesses. What are people going to think when I now start that third one up? 
fear of failure, fear of success with some people. So fear is a big thing for holding people back. So Lottie, talk to me a little bit more about that fear of success. Where does that come from? Again, many of these things come from our youth, the stories we've been told as a child. So maybe your parents have made you believe that money is a bad thing, that successful people are selfish, that successful people are unhappy. All these stories that we have in the back of our heads then go on to put that fear in place. What will people think of me if I suddenly have a bigger house than all my other friends? What will people think of me if my child goes to a different school? Will I become a bad person if I get to that level of success? Interesting. I mean, the other thing that we see is this I'm not worthy script. I don't deserve it. I'm not cut out for that. I don't belong. And the reality is that the mind is a prison for many people. It's self-imposed. I remember reading about a piece of research. I think it was MIT or Harvard. And they locked people into a room and told them that they had to push against the door in order to get out. And it took three days for someone to try and pull the door. And the door was unlocked. Now, whether or not that's an urban myth, it serves as a very good example of the type of limiting belief. So let's then move on to the subject of motivation. I have a a bit of a bee in my bonnet about motivation and motivational speakers. I I don't believe you can motivate anyone to do anything ever. So let's lob the grenade your way first. I love that you've said that because it's so funny because I don't like the word motivational either, but it's a keyword for SEO for my website. (laughs) So it's a really interesting one, isn't it? I say that I don't want to be motivational. I don't want to be inspirational. I want to be influential. I think our society, you know, in Western society, we've come very much that will go and maybe listen to a motivational speaker or listen to an inspirational event, go along. It's a bit like a rock concert. We really enjoy it. We have a great day. And then two weeks later, nobody has actually taken action. And so they go back again the next year and they have a great day and so on and so forth. I don't ever aim to be like that. And I think that's the danger with some things like firewalking and that I do, that if you don't get the proper support within the event, you don't get the proper support after the event, it can just be a kind of thing that you're just ticking off your list, like riding a roller coaster and so on and so forth. I think motivation is a small part of the package that can create change. It's all part of creating that bigger picture for people to not just be motivated, but to have that ongoing support or or better understanding of what's going on in the back of their head to create that long-term change. Well, it's interesting. I mean, if you look at the research on this and certainly the reality of it, motivation is an internal force. It's intrinsic. And there are two critical factors in my experience. First of all, they have to find their reason for wanting to do the behavior to change, to achieve the objective. And it must be, in order to maintain motivation, it must be 100% within their control. So 
One of the huge mistakes I see managers making is goal setting. Whenever I see that happening or I hear about it, I cringe because the certainty, I mean, this is the first year since records have been taken where less than 50%, in fact, 44% of reps worldwide have hit target in 2018. Now, in 2019, it looks like it's going to be lower. And I think that's partly down to belief systems, but I think also a kind of mismanagement that goes on, largely because of the well-intentioned ignorance of managers to try and drive certain behaviors instead of get people to find out their reason for wanting to do it and committing to do it themselves and coming up with the how themselves is partly to blame. So what I'm really interested in is how can you work with managers to help them understand their people better in order to be able to uncover their personal motivations so that you can tie their personal goals to their corporate goals. I love that. I just absolutely love that. I could not agree with you more about the goal setting, the managerial team leader goal setting without the rest of the team being involved. And as you say, it's all about that motivation, go for it, go for it, go for it. Quite often, completely unrealistic goals. And the reality is they're falling short all the time. And it's so much more about values. Uh, We have some great value elicitation exercises that we do with people. And we love to get the teams involved as well so that they can really take a look at the values of each individual in the room and then bring that together to do a team values exercise, what's important to them. And I see so many organizations actually that I get called into where they've had a coaching and the coaches taught them how to set their goals and how to tighten up their processes and make things run like a really smooth operation or so they're told. And initially it might feel great because everything's in a place and there's a place for everything. All those systems behind the scenes But what happens is the staff get displeased very quickly. They find the new systems difficult. It doesn't filter down properly. And the staff turnover increases. And actually what happens is through getting those coaches in to do that, it costs the company more money than they ever save. Absolutely. I mean, in fact, we've developed a program called Organizational Excellence. And what's really interesting is unless you start from the point of the personal vision of the owner and the personal vision of the individuals within the team, then putting together the mission and the values is non impossible. And what you end up with is conflict. And have you come across a fantastically elegantly simple model called the drama triangle? Oh, no, I don't think I have. Okay. The drama triangle describes every messed up, frustrating, dysfunctional relationship you can or will ever have on three points of a triangle. The victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. Oh, yeah, I do know it. I know it by a different name. I can't think what name I know it by. Cartman Triangle. We always draw the drama triangle on its point with the victim at the bottom because it makes it very unstable. You have the voice of the victim, which is, why me? This is so unfair. This always happens. And their other favorite refrain is, save me. Now, persecutors love a good victim because it gives them someone to 
get their teeth stuck into. Yeah. The persecutor comes with a jabby index finger that it diminishes you at an identity level. You piece of, you always, you never, you should have, you must, you ought. You're such a disappointment. You're all the same. And persecutors tend to eliminate any risk-taking because people do the minimum necessary not to get a bollocking. And then you have the rescuer who helps without boundaries or permission. And the rescuer is diminishing at an identity level in a different way, which is essentially they are mollycoddling, permissive, micromanaging. They finish the proverb, if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing myself instead of worth doing well. So people say, you know, sod it, I just can't be bothered because Lottie's going to take care of it anyway. I may as well do the minimum necessary. And what you find is people move around this triangle and that environment creates a culture of conflict, but not good conflict. There's a huge difference between constructive and destructive conflict. I'm curious again in terms of how programs like firewalking, glasswalking, help people to come together to work towards common purpose? Again, it's the way it's offered. I absolutely love firewalking in that kind of situation because, you know, it's very levelling. The CEO is just as able to shit a brick as the male boy. So everybody comes to it. Sorry, am I allowed to swear on this? I should check. (laughs) But everybody comes to it from the same place, which can be amazing in itself just to see a team brought to a complete level and ego has to be parked to be able to take part. But also, you know, for me, I always get the team supporting each other. You know, we don't have a queue. Everybody stands around, they cheer each other on. And when you've finished, you still stand around the fire, you're cheering people on, encouraging each other. And it's a great place to see a team be where everybody is just a level playing field suddenly, where everybody is in the same situation. And so I think it brings people together in a whole different light. We also offer campfires for teams where they can come together and sit around the fire, which is great, but it doesn't have the same impact as when they're putting those feet on those coals. I have to ask the question, do you end up getting a decent barbecue at the end of it at least? Oh, always, always. So for the events I run myself, we always cook our supper on the fire once we've finished, which I think is really lovely. We have baked potatoes cooked on the fire and things like that. And also to go into the business setting as well, it's something that many, many people did as young boys and girls with the scouts and the guides and that kind of idea. And in business, we kind of forget about those things that really connect us to our youthful nature without having to go out and get drunk or or whatever. Though, of course, people can have a drink around the fire afterwards. (laughs) And it's lovely to see the effect that has on people, actually. They just literally loosen up and, and really enjoy themselves. So in terms of lasting change that comes from events like that, can you give us some examples of how you've been able to reinforce the lessons so that it wasn't just two weeks of remember what we did around the the coals? Yeah, it's definitely starting from a point long before we walk in the preparation to tell people how to do that. You know, how can they create an anchor from the firewalking? 
what can they use for that and giving them some good exercises to go and do after the bubble not like physical exercises but sitting down pen and paper unpacking it what's it created for them and then if possible I always like to work with people going forward as well you know to do a couple of sessions with the team or maybe the team leaders to see how has that impact filtered through it's one of those things that it's very difficult to quantify did a firewalk lead to the kind of level of success that is being reached three months later. And I guess that's something to a point we'll never know. But if people are supported to bring that in, to start challenging the beliefs they have about other aspects of business or other aspects of life, just like they challenge the fact whether they could put their feet on a hot coals, they can literally turn some beliefs that they've had for donkey's years that might be ruling their whole life completely on its head. I am curious. I'm a firm believer that most training doesn't work for the simple reason that there isn't that reinforcement. And often training fails before it even begins because of lack of clarity in terms of the intended outcome and a commitment to a long-term reinforcement in collaboration with the managers. So talk to me about the kind of reinforcement processes that you do put in place and how you work with managers. So we give some simple exercises that we try and get people to working on. And then those commitments of kind of checking in with themselves, how's it going, but also putting that accountability in place. So, you know, maybe a group call with me once a month. Also, I work with a guy called Chris Stad. So with Chris as well, a group call once a month. How's this working out? What change are you seeing? What are you struggling with? So always getting people to keep challenging that mindset rather than just slipping into those bad habits. Working with the metaphors can be a little bit like the content-free coaching that you see that can really click change into place quite quickly. But for it to be most impactful, I think you do need to go deeper and look at what's been underlying those values and those beliefs that are there and support people to keep moving forward in challenging them. Can we go into some specifics? Because I'm always a little bit wary of being wishy-washy in general. You talked about use of metaphors. Can you give us an example of that? For example, someone who is limited by their money concept. Yeah, absolutely. So if you've got a belief about your money, so maybe you grew up with your family telling you that only greedy, bad people had money. And that's what you've grown up with. And it's impacted on your beliefs, your money beliefs throughout your adult life. So whenever you get to a certain point of finances, you jeopardize that. So what we can do is if we can help people to number one, pinpoint that belief, and then we can get them to use, for instance, firewalking, glasswalking as a really strong anchor for stepping through your beliefs. Seeing a belief, recognizing it's there, but making a conscious choice to override that belief, then we can assist them to put the same things in place for their money beliefs as well. And sometimes it will be tiny, tiny steps of just kind of overcoming that belief. How are you getting on? What are you doing? So I like to see people getting a journal out and journaling about their belief. There's a great exercise I'm really happy to share. So You know, I was saying at the beginning where people might have that tabletop of a belief or a fear, and then they have all the smaller beliefs that stacking it as legs. 
So people can write a really long list of all those kind of beliefs around maybe their money story. And I would say the longer, the better. Because some people might just go one or two things on the list. They're the people that won't get the results. Really get it all out on paper. Then write a second list with a positive statement that counteracts each one. And that's where a lot of coaches will leave it. But I would say go back and write a third list. And the third list is to give thanks or gratitude for everything on the second list. And you start very slowly to remind yourself of all the things that you have in place already that can support you to create a new story. And it's a long journey, but it slowly filters through. It's not something that happens overnight. We've already said about changing habits, but it can just help you to be conscious about the choices you're making about your beliefs. It's very interesting that you mentioned gratitude because Again, one of the things I've realized over the years is that people who are grateful tend to be significantly more attractive to other people than people who aren't. And it's such a simple shift. But I think a lot of people, I don't know whether it's a particularly English thing, but we tend to be a bit wary of that. And it all feels a little bit woo-woo and tree-huggy. But it is remarkably effective. And since I've started instituting gratitude on a daily basis into my life, I've found that it's much easier for me to be likable. In the past, I've certainly been very matter-of-fact and very results-driven. But I think that it scared a lot of people away. And the fact that I can be grateful, and I am grateful on a daily basis, and I can't believe I've found something I'm good at, and I get paid for. So, Fantastic. Uh, and I love to do. And that's very infectious. So how do you get people to shift away from that rather conservative mindset where it is all a little bit woo-woo? So sometimes it's harder than other times and some people are more open to it than others. But I think a great example, Marcus, if I can say to people, it's not all woo-woo. Look at this person, they've started doing it, they're noticing the difference. And just encourage people to try it. In my personal life and some of the events I run myself, I'm very damn woo-woo. But just a little bit of doing it, if people can start to do it and see the difference, they can then start to do it themselves. And what I see in teams is there might be some people that are more open to it than others, but then they might have a call with me two months later and they're noticing the results that the people that have been doing it every day are having. And suddenly it becomes easier because if nothing less, they notice that that person is happier. That person is feeling more fulfilled. And quite often already two months down the line, seeing the change in the results as well. For businesses, I was saying earlier about the staff retention and people leaving, tightening the process, go for the goals, go for the goals. And people leave, even if staff retention can be improved upon within an organization, it can save them huge amounts of money. So if nothing more, it just makes people happier, then that's a good result. It's interesting. Patrick Lencioni of The Table Group, funnily enough, has written some really interesting books. And he talks about the three signs of a miserable job. And I would add two others. He always talks about anonymity, immeasurement, and irrelevance. And I would also add isolation and stagnation uh, to those. And it's really interesting because 
you can have the right people in the right job, but they are not motivated because the work itself doesn't interest them. They feel like a cog in the machine. It feels like they're not seeing themselves make progress. It feels like the work that they do doesn't matter. And Marcus Buckingham, from originally from Gallup, his research in a book called The One Thing You Need to Know was distilled into the Gallup Finder profile. And this is really interesting. I think they interviewed half a million people at the top of their game across 29 years. And it was a 90-minute interview. So the data is really thorough. People need to feel that the work that they're doing is important and meaningful. Uh, It needs to play to their strengths. And it also needs to feed their purpose. And again, all of this sounds a little bit tree-huggy, but the reality is that these are the things that make human beings tick. We all want to be heard, we want to feel felt, and we want to be understood. We want to feel like we're making a contribution. We want to feel like the work that we are doing is important and meaningful. And we derive satisfaction from serving others. I remember one of my clients ran speaking events company, and he had Stephen Covey come over. And I asked Stephen Covey the blandest of questions, but he came back with the most inspirational and influential responses. And uh, he said, the greatest among us serve the most. And this really got me thinking. It It was a watershed moment for me because I realized that leadership wasn't about leading. It was about serving. And it was about helping enough other people get their needs met. And that plays to Emerson's law of compensation, which is to get more, give more. So I'm sure this is going to lead to a really good question in a second. My question on this is, how can we get management and leadership to move away from this obsession with the end result, which is fixing the wrong end of the problem, and to focus on the right end of the problem? That's a great question. And I think it's a slow process. And I think some organizations are more open to it than others. Again, I think in business, it's about seeing the results for so many people. So if they can see the results that other organizations are getting from working in this way, and just also, you know, again, it's about listening to the values of their teams, listening to the needs of their teams, and being prepared to step up and see their leadership being as part of creating that. One of the things I do in my business every couple of years is I run a women's only mountain trek to the highest point of North Africa. But one of the things I love about that is we have two mountain leaders on the mountains with us. And the first leader walks at the front of the group. The second leader walks at the back of the group. They're just as important, just as skilled, and have just as much to offer, probably if not more, to everybody that's there. And I think we need more leaders that are prepared to do that, to stand at the back of their people, to scoop them along, to nurture them, to be prepared to go at their pace, to still get the results of getting to the top of the mountain. I do a lot of work with my clients around predictive hiring. And one of the things that always surprises them is how comparatively unimportant things like skills historical experience and historical results are in comparison to habits, 
values, attitudes and beliefs and cognitive abilities. And increasingly, it really surprises them very early on when we're designing the ideal candidate, how important things like habits and values, attitudes and beliefs are. And making sure that there is a good alignment there between the values of the business and the values of the individual. Making sure that their beliefs are in line with the purpose of the organization and that they are there to be a net contributor. And what's really fascinated me is very often they have superstars who are lone wolves, but very quickly they realize that actually they're harming the business. Even though they may be great producers, their value add contribution is marginally less than if we remove them and bring everybody else up to a certain level because they're all working towards common purpose rather than selfish purpose. How do you help flush out those selfish beliefs within an organization to help managers recognize that while they may have a superstar in their midst, they may actually be doing them harm? Yeah, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because if you've got one person that's just focused on their own success, it can often be quite disruptive within a team. But again, it's about looking at that one person's values, that one person's beliefs, and the teams as a whole. And I think the reality is if you can get a team with a really strong belief structure in place, that really strong idea of what it is they're creating, if you've got that one person that just doesn't fit into that, over time, they will dissipate and probably leave. Because what it becomes, suddenly, if you've got somebody that's usually quite competitive, you know, if they're going for it for themselves, if the rest of the team is really working together, pooling results, pooling resources, they'll get frustrated and move on. But that is about creating the really strong structure within the rest of the team rather than isolating and being disruptive with that one person. Let's talk a little bit about the creation of habits again then. What processes do you go through in order to help management and leadership teams identify the right kind of habits within a team and then develop those uh, habits within individuals? So it's something we really like them to try and pinpoint themselves. So it's going through working with them to pinpoint what the individual values are in the room and then working together to bring that together to bring a nice group value elicitation out. So we have a real clear idea of what the team's main values are and where those have come from, and then to work out how they're going to create those values. It's quite funny, isn't it? Because most people will say that they value others. They value others' opinions. They value kindness and so on and so forth. But actually, when you look at the way their business is working, there's none of it going on. So it's then about supporting them to bring their values into play in the business. And that's quite often about communication, about celebrating wins. I'm a big fan. One of my kind of mantras is celebrate what you want to replicate. And that has to go across the whole team, really recognizing what people are achieving And just getting those processes slowly into place that foster and develop the way they want to be. And quite often that can be quite a big job because there are so many businesses out there that just aren't performing in a way they say is valuable to them. 
This is a really interesting point. Have you read Alfie Cohn's Punished by Rewards? No. Really interesting uh, book, Punished by Rewards, Hmm. uh, Alfie Cohn, K-O-H-N. And his postulate is that rewards, positive or negative, so beating people with a carrot, punishment actually diminishes the effectiveness of individuals and teams. And so everything from star systems in schools, so giving people gold stars, which I'm a big fan of in my training, and always recognize that uh, yeah. children in that, trapped in adult bodies, but competitions for salespeople where they can win a holiday or a boat sound system. What they do is they create a short-term increase in activity, but then people drop back. And the research on this is depressingly consistent that having people rewarded for specific results can often create the conditions for people to backslide. And instead of treating reading, for example, like a pleasurable play activity, creates the conditions of work. And as a result, children who've been bribed with a pizza token for reading books out of the library that end up only reading afterwards when they get a pizza token or some form of reward. So it's, it's really interesting trying to find that balance. I, I haven't quite got there yet. I'm still on a journey to try and work it out. So if any of the listeners out there have any thoughts and actual workable data that can help, this would be a fantastic area of discussion. You'd be welcome to come on the podcast and teach me a thing or two. What's your experience around the use of rewards but getting the wrong result? Yeah, so I think there's a difference between rewards and celebrations. So I would always go for the celebration over the rewards. The issue with rewards is it can create animosity. As you were saying about that one person that always is the front of the line, you know, I was always the last person to be chosen for sports at school. I was always the last one. You know, when they choose the team, everybody, there's me at the end. Nobody wanted me. And I grew up thinking I wasn't good at sport, that I couldn't do sport. And then since I turned 40, I've run marathons, I've climbed mountains because I challenged that belief. And I think there is the danger when you're giving rewards of creating that within other people, that the ones that aren't getting the rewards or you know, are always coming second start to think, I can't do this, which is not what you want to create. Whereas a celebration is something completely different because everybody can be a part of that celebration. So I work as part of a team in the States for an American organization where there's half a dozen of us coaching entrepreneurs on different aspects of their business. And anytime any of us have a win, it goes into a Voxer group message. So if somebody gets a sale, if one of the clients posts a big win in the Facebook group, you know, anything like that, it all goes into the Voxer group so that everybody can celebrate. And it's not about, oh, I created this or I achieved this. It's look what we've done. And I think that mindset serves businesses and organizations so much better when it's that group celebration rather than the individual being rewarded. Very interesting. We've run a WhatsApp group around my public training programs. It's great when people have a win. 
because everybody piles in and it's a fantastic opportunity for us to all to be lifted up when yeah. we see someone else's success because it's not selfish. And again, we, you know, we forget that we are essentially social primates and you're not going to override 200 million years of evolutionary hardwiring since we became mammal. The reality is we got between two and 300 million years of hardwiring in our brains that determines largely how we behave. We're creatures of programming and habit. Again, this is a challenge. My theory is that free will exists in the gaps, in the brief moments between us realizing we have no free will and then making a conscious choice to do something other than what we're programmed to do. Again, do you have any thoughts in terms around free will? So we all have free will. We all have those choices to do. But as you say, we're also hardwired for that through our history, our ancestors and everything else. So there's always going to be a balance. And again, those beliefs that we have that we've grown up with that are going to affect our choices. And that's why I always kind of support people to make conscious choices, conscious decisions, really look at the evidence, examine it. What is holding you back from doing this? Why are you stopping? Historically, we would never have done anything unless the reward or the prize at the end was pretty much guaranteed. So for instance, for hunting, just to be able to eat, our ancestors would have looked at how much energy is it going to take to catch that woolly mammoth or whatever it was, I don't know. Because if it was going to take more energy than the animal was going to give from eating, they wouldn't have taken that risk. And that's apparently why we can be quite risk adverse because our brains kind of add it all up and go, what are the prizes I'm going to get from this? What is the overall win? And if our brain thinks it's not as great as the risk, we can hang back. So we have all of that going on and it just makes making that conscious choice harder but it doesn't mean to say that we can't do it. I can't remember who it was. I'll have to dig out the name of the book. But essentially, the theory was that most of us have, been, have evolved from risk-averse ancestors because yeah. our ancestors could have been wandering across the savannah and there was a brown rock behind a bush. Now, most of our ancestors uh, would have thought, you know, I'm going to take the long way around just in case. Whereas the less risk-averse ones would have thought, ah, forget it, probably isn't a liar. And then they would lunch. So we've ended up being programmed and it's been built into our genes not to take risks. Now, it's really interesting. The difference between risking and sacrificing is something that I see misunderstood a lot. Risking is moving from lower to higher value with the possibility that you'll lose some or all of what you've got. Sacrificing is moving from higher to lower value, and there is no upside. So risking would be me walking along the seafront with my daughter. She gets washed in. I jump in to save her, and I lose my life. That's a risk, because I value my daughter's life over mine. On the other hand, I'm walking across along the seafront, and a stranger falls in, I jump in to save them and then I lose my life. And that's a sacrifice because I value my life more than a stranger's. And too often we see people confusing the two. And so they don't take risks. I think a life without risk is a life without growth. 
we need to fail. We need to take the risk that maybe it won't work out. I don't know about you, but while celebrating success is great, I'm a big fan of failure. In fact, on Friday, I did a podcast all about failing. It was for entrepreneurs who really want to learn how to develop. And I've never learned anything really substantially meaningful from my victories. I've learned shed loads uh, from damn good drubbing. So in terms of beliefs, what are the beliefs that you come across on a regular basis that prevent people from taking risk? Where would I start? You know, there's so many of people are so risk adverse at the moment, aren't they? I think that the Western culture at the moment is very, very risk adverse. We're brought up where we ride on roller coasters with big safety harnesses, we bungee jump on bouncy ropes and things like that. But there's always that element of safety. There's never really that true risk. And so I think everybody at the moment or the majority of people at the moment are very, very risk adverse. They kind of think there should always be that safety net. And I think that for people not to have that safety net and still to take the steps at the moment is very, very challenging for them. Very challenging for them. But you only get the results if you take the risk. It's just like you were saying with your daughter, you know, if you don't take the risk, your daughter's a goner. As simple as that. It's the same as your business. If you want your business to reach new financial heights or new sizes or anything like that, be impactful on more people, only way you're going to do it is by taking the risk. And I've never met a successful business person, a successful entrepreneur or anything that hasn't had the failures, that hasn't done that. It's really interesting, the difference between UK and European venture capitalists and US venture capitalists is that if you have even a sniff of a county court judgment about credit rating, then European VCs are very unlikely to invest in you unless you've been bankrupted three times and recovered. Uh, Silicon Valley VCs won't invest in you. And the average rate of return in European and UK, this was a long time back, but I don't think it's changed, was the British Venture Capital Association said it was roughly 8%, whereas in Silicon Valley, it was 38%. Wow. So that gives you an indication of the difference because I think one of the most important characteristics, when we're teaching our clients how to recruit, one of the areas we look for is cognitive abilities and skills. And one of those cognitive abilities is resilience. It's the ability to bounce back. And increasingly, you see people who don't take the risk because they don't want to look stupid. And I remember at school, I always had my hand up. I was one of those irritating children who always asked a question. And I wasn't necessarily afraid to look stupid in front of the class because I think there's an old Chinese proverb, ask a question and you're a fool for five minutes, don't and you're a fool for life. And I remember people hissing at me because it was the end of the class. I didn't understand something and I'd ask a question and gave a hoot, to be honest. I wanted to learn. But I don't think that when you're hiring somebody, it ever makes sense, certainly in a sales position, for you to hire someone who doesn't take risks. I think in management, you want somebody who takes risks. It doesn't mean that they don't learn from their mistakes. I think repeating the same mistake over and over again is stupid. And that, that is a problem. But you want to seek 
out people who take risks, fail, learn from it, and constantly improve. So one of my favorite questions of a new candidate is, okay, talk to me about the last six serious failures you've had. What did you learn? How did you apply those lessons? And how did you turn them into habits? Um, yeah. Obviously, a sequence of questions. So in terms of developing great habits, how can one use skills like mindfulness, improving self-talk, journaling, in order to develop more effective habits? So journaling to me is a, is a big one. I love doing journaling myself and I always recommend it to other people. And there are different styles you can use, but making a mistake is a key thing where journaling can come in because what you can do in your journal is unpick why that mistake happened. Was there something you could have done differently? If the same opportunity or thing happened this time, what would you do? And so on. And to be able to do that in a journal where you're just free writing, nobody else is judging it, you can hopefully get to a point where you let go of judgment of yourself as well, then what you can create is a really deep level of learning from that experience. So I always recommend journaling to everybody, even if it's just five minutes in the morning, get in the habit of doing it. I think mindfulness is a great one for regrouping as well. So quite often when we do things wrong or things go wrong, we really beat ourselves up. And that internal process can be much worse than anybody else can ever do to us. So there's a great mindfulness technique that you can bring in just to help you to kind of reground and regroup. And then you can just start again, parking what's happened and moving on. And it's called the three breath check-in. It's a great one because everybody breathes. So nobody has an excuse not to do this. It's literally just taking three breaths. But while you're taking those breaths, all of your attention goes to the breath. So can you hear it? Can you feel it? And so on. Is it warm? Is it cold? Coming down your nose? Does it make your chest rise? Can you get it right down to the solar plexus? What happens there? Some people even feel their fingers tingle when they're breathing in. That kind of idea for three breaths. And what that enables you to do is just switch off that thought pattern of like, oh shit, I've done it wrong again. Oh no, what, yeah, what's happened? I shouldn't have done that. I should have done better. Just to clear your head of that to enable you to move on to the next thing. We are our own worst critics for when things go wrong. And that process of beating ourselves up doesn't help anybody. It's interesting. Have you read Mark Goldston's book, Just Listen? Oh, yeah, I think I did a while ago. Yeah. The other book he wrote that's fantastic is Talking to Crazy. It starts with talking to the crazy in yourself. Yeah. Uh, He has a five step process called Oh, Fuck to OK. Um, Fabulous. First thing is, oh, fuck, what have I done? Oh, shit, this is going to be a disaster. Oh, truth. This is such a problem. Oh, well, what's happened's happened. Okay, what can I do about it? And in under a minute, you can take yourself from that amygdala hijack and prevent all the cortisol and adrenaline dripping through or coursing through your veins and through your brain. Because again, I think one of the most important things to understand, again, is as mammals, we have an endocrine system. And the endocrine system is responsible for throwing hormones out into our bloodstream. Hormones affect our physiology. Our physiology affects our emotions. And unless we learn to control this deliberately, then we are a creature of reaction. 
learning to move from reacting to choosing a response and then making a conscious decision to do something better or differently is a mark of someone who has evolved. And increasingly, what I'm depressed by is the amount of exposure we put ourselves into towards that drama triangle. You only have to look at television programming to recognize the drama triangle is what the media industry thrives on. The news is all about other people's misery. Reality TV is about other people's misery. Drama, soap operas. From September through to New Year's Day is a rising cadence of misery. It's so that we can say, thank God that's not me or mine. Thank God it's not me who's out there in Syria being a refugee. Yeah. And it's fascinating to see how completely fucked up we are as a species. My favorite poem is by Philip Larkin. This be the verse. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They don't mean to, but they do. They fill you with all the faults they had and they add some extra just for you. And it goes on. But what it tells us is that we need to be able to recognize and then let go of this scripting. Let's just finish on this issue of confidence. When we can let go of the scripting, when we are comfortable in our own skin, when we stop shooting on ourselves and we're true to our values and beliefs, then we can be comfortable with who we are. So talk to me a little bit about confidence, where that comes from and how one can maintain it. Good question. Yeah. So confidence, I would say, comes from a place of self-awareness. So once you know what makes you happy, once you know what makes you tick, then you can work towards achieving it. Um, But when you're lacking self-confidence, what happens is you look to the media for telling you how you should be. You look to other people for those rewards and so on and so forth. True confidence comes from a place where you think, this is me. This is as authentic as I can possibly be at the moment. And I'm okay with that. It's interesting, actually, I had a picture pop up on my social media just this morning. It was one of those Facebook memories from four years ago. I've got long, brown, curly hair. (laughs) So I I had curly hair. Yeah. It was brown once. So I know this is going out uh, just on audio. So I've now got short gray cropped hair and stuff like that. But I am so happy with the person I am. And I know there's always work to be done and things that I can do, but I love what I do. I love the way I do it. I love the opportunities that come up in my life because of that. So actually to get to that place is all about examining what makes you happy. It's interesting what you say about the TV and the media and stuff like that. I don't watch TV. I do not watch TV. If there's a program I particularly want to watch, I'll fire it up on my laptop. But I do not put myself out into a position where I can be affected by all that misery and that grot and just the soap operas, the reality TV and things like that. Just not of interest to me. I do not need that drama in my life. So that's a great place for people to start with stuff. You know, what look at their patterns of behavior, what they do, how they spend their time and start thinking, actively thinking, what does that bring to my life? And if it's not a lot, get rid of it. Absolutely. 
I would also say with your connections, your friends and so on, I encourage people to create circles. So they have the inner circle and then the next circle out, the next circle out. Be proactive about what circle you want what people in so that you're surrounding yourself with the people that are going to be supportive, uplifting, laugh at you in a good way. So keep encouraging you to keep humor about what you're doing, but keep on your journey. And really be proactive about the choices you're making. And I think that's what brings confidence. Okay, I challenge one thing there. Certainly with the way social media works, it's very easy to find yourself in a bubble and an echo chamber. The one thing I would qualify with what Lottie's just said is make sure that you have people in your circles who you disagree with and who challenge your belief systems and who will give you a damn good slapping every now and again. Because I think there's nothing like a little bit of humility and asking yourself the question, well, what if I'm wrong? What if this belief system is absolutely wrong. What if the opposite were true? Now, I'm not saying for a second, surround yourself with a bunch of neo-Nazis. Although, to be perfectly honest, while I find those threads repugnant, what they do is they help me to challenge my thinking. So finding people whose views are the opposite end of the political and religious spectrum, whose values are different to mine. Surrounding myself, for example, The best things that I've done, in fact, I just published it this morning, is a a podcast that I did last week with yet another fantastically brilliant millennial, a guy called Rian Lanigan. And surround yourself with people who are at the opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to the road to the grave. I think people with younger brains have more white matter in there. Fat brains are great things. They cause you to see the world through a different lens. And I found it really helpful working with millennials. A lot of the work that I do at the moment is with people in their mid-20s and younger. And it's really inspiring. I had no idea there was so much I could learn from these people that are barely out of short trousers and still have a long life ahead of them as as I'm entering my autumn years. So absolutely, surround yourself with people who are supportive But I think it's the grit in the oyster that makes the pearl. So make sure that you have a little dose of uh, people who you find contentious and difficult. Absolutely. My inner circle is full of people that challenge me, actually. The people that challenge you are the people that will also inspire you to grow. And I guess the difference is, I would say, it's what you were saying earlier as well. Yeah, One of my key mantras is respond, not react. And what you don't want in your inner circle is a group of people that make you want to react because then you're being triggered a lot. So yes, have those people that can put forward other ideas and challenge where you're coming from in a way that you can respond and therefore you can learn and grow from. But if it's just people that are triggering you and so on, then I would say they have no place in that inner circle. You could always apply the three-breath check-in. Yes, (laughs) all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous. Lottie, we've come up to the hour. Thank you so much for joining me today. Any parting words? I'd just say I've really enjoyed my time. It's been great to chat this through with you, actually. 
And I'd just like to encourage everybody that's listening to find one belief about themselves that they can challenge. That's good advice. I would ask about a book, but then that would drag us into the conversation. <laughs> Uh, moving the deadlines. So a, a quick lesson back to you, that you never move the goal, only the behavior that gets you there. But I know you know this already. So yeah. Lottie's book will be coming out shortly. If you'd like a copy of it, type never move the goal, only change <laughs> the behavior in the comments section. And then she'll give you a free chapter when it comes out. Lottie, how can people get hold of you? What's your website? Oh, yeah. My website is mindsetmetaphors.com, mindsetmetaphors.com. Or the easiest way, if people want to have a chat through of some of the issues I've brought up today, then just give me a ring. The office number is 0333-772-9692. And if you want to do a firewalk or a glass walk, then Lottie's your man. So I have to say scares the bejesus out of me. Absolutely not convinced that it's a good thing. I'm just curious about the insurance uh, arrangements with that. How does that work? Will anyone insure? Yeah, I have insurance and it states fire walking on the insurance policy. Uh, Is that for personal injury or just for setting the place on fire? It's for public liability, yeah. So we're, we're covered, which everyone never had to make a claim though. So I should just point that out as well. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so parting words then. Top three favorite books of all time, and they can be novels or they can be development businesses. Oh, top three favorite books of all time. I am a reader, so just to think of three books is quite a challenge. I would say, what would I say? What would I say? I've just finished reading a book called The One. That was great. I couldn't even tell you who it was by, but that's a great fiction novel very on point with modern life. So I would recommend that. I would recommend Wuthering Heights for a bit of chiclet escapism from, from, from where it initially came from. And I love The Big Leap as well. We recommend that to all, all our clients, The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. About, Big Leap. Yeah, yeah. Stepping out of the comfort zone, stepping out of the um, zone of excellence and going right into your zone of genius. H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S. Hendrix, yeah. yeah. I said the gin. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's very important. And yes. also recommend the Hendrix gin. Love that stuff. Yes. Um, Big cucumber, okay. go for it. <laughs> and if you were to give one bit of advice to the, let's say, 25-year-old Lottie, because you'll have gone through the worst of your hormones by then, what would be your one bit of advice? I wish somebody had told me this stuff when I was 25. So my one bit of advice would be find one belief about yourself. Look at one stack that you're putting under your table and start challenging it. Start turning on its head and start giving thanks for the fact that you, even at 25 years old, have everything in your arsenal to achieve the opposite. Fantastic. Lottie Moore, thank you very much for being my guest today. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. I look forward to speaking to you guys again soon. If you have any desire to get in touch with Lottie, we've passed the details on. I'll make sure that they're attached in the blurb around the podcast. But if you're interested in kicking ass when it comes to sales and you're based in the southeast of England, then please come along as my guest. 
the one on masterclasses, I guarantee it will be desperately uncomfortable. My job is to hold up the ugly mirror and ask bloody awkward, uncomfortable questions. Questions that make you sit up and take a sharp intake of breath and think, why on God's earth have I been doing it that way for so long and so stupidly? I promise that not only will it be uncomfortable, but it will be insightful. And if you want to come along to that, then ping me, mkauke at sandler.com with masterclass in the subject line. And uh, once again, Lottie, thank you very much for being my guest. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Take care now. Bye-bye.